Hello and welcome to the Property Management Show. I'm your host, Alex Osinenko. My day job is the CEO of 4.5, a marketing company that works exclusively with fee-based property management companies. I spent the last seven years of my life helping property management companies become more successful by improving sales, marketing, and operational efficiency. On this show, we'll deconstruct success into its key components and invite subject matter experts to help you improve every facet of your business. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. So, hey guys, uh, thanks for lending uh, on this podcast today. Uh, this is uh, probably the last one of 2016. I have uh, we have an awesome topic today. It's top ten mistakes and lesson lesson learned. Um, you know, I, I have a gentleman here um, as my guest. Uh, I've known him for a while now. His name is Brad Larson. He is a, you know, a couple of credentials I'm going to mention. You know, he's a property manager since 2004, so he's got some experience. Brad also has master's in business administration degree. He is a retired U.S. Army captain. Thank you for your service and really appreciate that. Um, and I had, you know, if I had to like three words to describe Brad, I would say I would say experience, education, and drive. Um, and he never does things halfway. I mean, just the fact that he spent so much time and, and energy preparing for this interview and putting together the ten mistakes and lessons. When I saw the list, it's like, wow, those are those are very very good. And we're going to try to fit all of them into this show today. So, Brad, how are you today? I'm great, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Hey man, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So let's, without further ado, unless I miss something in your introduction uh, that you feel is relevant and important, let's dive right into the first one. No, she forgot. Uh, extremely charming and good looking. Forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes without saying. Good man. Sure. All right. So what's what? What do you feel is the number one? Um, you know, uh, most often made mistake, and what's the lesson that people can uh, learn from it? Yeah, Alex, uh, you were talking about that in the prep here just a second ago. So I took some time and wrote down a list of roughly 10 things I thought would be worth mentioning. And, you know, to be honest, it's going to be airing some dirty laundry a little bit, but uh, that's how people learn. And I think it's going to be beneficial to everybody to kind of to see what we want to go through on this list. And we'll try to get through each one of them, as you mentioned, and talk about some of these in detail to put them in context. So maybe it can help some folks out there that, that might need that. Uh, a little bit of understanding, a little bit deeper on some of these issues, and we can make it, you know, make it a fun deal, make it the, the top ten David Letterman type stuff going on, and uh, should be kind of cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So hit me with one. Okay, so one of the first things I talked about uh, when I sent you that email with the prep was you know, waiting too long to hire a business development person, and you know, it took me a little bit of uh, time to get into that. You know, we were probably close to 200, 250 homes by the time we really figured out that it was a necessity to hire a business development. And you've had some good folks on your show, uh, and they're going to talk about that being a, a basically one of the first things you have to do if your intentions are to grow, simply because uh, you can't do everything as a business owner. You can't run operations. You can't run payroll. You can't do everything else. And then go out and do two or three appointments a week or even a day and attempting to bring on further business. Well, well, you know, before you get appointments, sorry, Brad, to break your flow, but before you get appointments, you have to do, you know, a very structured, you have to implement, execute a very structured sales process. You got to follow up with people. People don't, don't fall on your head, right? They might be interested at this moment, but you don't get back to them right away if you don't have a follow-up process, if you don't have a system. And just want to preface this by saying, I am a firm believer that a salesperson should be an asset to an organization, not a liability, not a drain, he or she should be an asset. So, with that, um, how you know how long did it take you to get to two hundred? And how and what were you like? What what was the epiphany? Like, how did you realize? Okay, this is it. I gotta get a salesperson. Really, what happened is I started listening to some of the information the Australians put out through mm -hmm. leading property managers of Australia, and that's one of the first things they beat into your head is hire business development, hire business development, and it really got to the point where we hit you know two hundred homes. That, that rang true, and I got some good advice through NARPA mentors. Uh, and then to kind of give you, to go exactly along the same lines you were talking about a second ago with the lead follow-up, I wish, I wish, I wish we would have fully implemented Lead Simple years ago 
to tie into our business development. And I know that's a cheap plug for you guys, but it really is holding true because we're going through a business development reorganization right now. Uh, and we're creating an inside and outside approach. And now we're implementing that lead simple program and we're very impressed with it. And so it's a, one of those lessons learned, I'll tell you, that ties into the business development side is not getting a solid CRM platform stood up soon enough. I got you. So you mentioned something about overpaying a BDM. Um, I've heard that mentioned before by by number of people. And essentially what it comes down to is having the uh, recurring uh, revenue style commission sharing where the person continues to earn as that client pays a management fee. Is that how you structured it initially? We did in the beginning and that was a mistake. I think uh, what happened is our intentions going into hiring that initial business development person was we're going to we'll be lucky to sign on 100 homes. We'll be lucky. Uh, in 2016 we signed on 225. So it was a situations where we look back at the compensation model and, and we, we all said to each other, this is just unsustainable. We can't continue to do this. So we had to go through a bit of a reorganization process. And that's why we're getting now into Lead Simple and, and hiring a couple folks to handle the business development side. If I had to make a recommendation, I would say do a base salary, do a commitment to that particular business development person, and then do some uh, one-time incentive type commissions on top of that to give somewhere in the, in the complete package range that fits your market. Because you want to get a good sales person, not necessarily a converted realtor. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So my, my recommendation there stands uh, at, you know, a base salary and as well as a percentage of the annual contract value the person signs. So for example, if the annual contract value of a single family home in San Antonio is, let's, I don't know, what is it, 2,500, 2,200? Yeah, it's a fair, fair guess. Yeah, so you got to shave a bit of off, uh, like say ten percent or something, and add that as a commission pay. But so they're incentivized by signing more, uh, more customers, reaching out for referrals, uh, as well as doing new business development and other things. But you know, if they sign a house with you know a, an owner with twenty homes, they know they got to work this deal a little bit harder. Um, you know, they get paid more. So mm -hmm. I think it's what they bring. They need to have eat a little bit of what they bring in, and that's. Um, to me, that sounds like an aligned, well-aligned compensation. Agreed. And the checks and balances there is we are in a portfolio management style. So if the business development person wants to go out and sign up the doghouse, well, the portfolio manager here that would be in the batting order to take on that home can say, no, I'm not taking that home. And that's where, as the Australians would say, that the water finds its own level. And so we've been using that technique, and that works out very well. So we don't get anybody just to sign up whatever they can just to earn that, that cheap commission up front. Very good. Very good idea. So checks and balances. The portfolio manager goes, no, -uh, you know, you're not bringing that to me. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And, and, they've, and they've said that and we, we don't, you know, it's no harm, no foul in saying that uh, because if nobody can manage it, if nobody wants to manage it, well, there you go. You're not going to sign it up. Let me ask you this. Um, this brings up a good point. Um, do you guys have any cross-departmental training? In other words, your portfolio managers have sit-downs with the uh, BDMs. Do you have any kind of that exchange going on in your company? Absolutely. Yeah, because what we're actually implementing now is the opportunity potentially on a second appointment with the business development person is for the portfolio manager to go with the business development person. Imagine that meeting where the BDM walks in with the portfolio manager and says, how are you doing, Mr. and Mrs. Owner? This will be the person behind me handling your home. I'd like to introduce you to your portfolio manager, your single owner point of contact. And that's been working out very well because the owners immediately take to them and say, oh, you're the person that's going to be working with me. And so they immediately start conversating on, on how to get their home ready, uh, what's got to happen, uh, the tenant handover procedures, et cetera, and some of those situations where we want to nail put the nail in the coffin as they say to get that business that is absolutely brilliant you know i i spent some time in in enterprise software sales and and one of the things that that usually gets the deal across um uh to the signature is bringing an engineer uh, the salesperson would team up with an engineer or they call also called solution consultants where you know the the person is gonna uh, is, is able to speak the language <laughs> and mm -hmm. and you know and especially in in your case where you know, the, the, the prospective owner will have that person as a main point of contact. It's a great way to introduce and, and show the might and, and the, the care the organization puts into this process. It's not just a salesperson talking. There's actually, here's a person who's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just, that, that's great. Um, so to tie up number one, 
um, and saying waiting too long to hire a BDM. Let's take a time machine, Brad. Let's move you back a little bit. When do you hire? Like, let think about it for a second. What what point in your growth in your business, you know, uh, uh, growth would you take the plunge and hire BDM? Absolutely. Once you get to a hundred homes, I think that's a great trigger point to start investigating that process, because at that point you have more than enough on your plate to manage. You need somebody to take over on the development side of the business to leave you to build the management side and build the operation side and let them do the sales. So gotcha. that's, that's exactly, I think, a great trigger point. Uh, you can make an argument for 150 or 50 or start at zero and, and build from scratch, but uh, you got to imagine everyone's going to kind of do this on a shoestring to a certain extent to where they're not going to go out and drop a big salary on a business development person when they have no income, no revenue coming in from management agreements. Fair enough. Fair enough. So 100 homes. I like that. I like that, Mark. That's a that's a pretty good. Although, you know, there's some property management startups that are financed from outside capital, like either either existing successful real estate businesses or just simply, you know, investment money um, into building a portfolio. So in that case, you know, if you want to start start out hot and grow uh, fast, you need one out of the gate. But uh, if you're shoestring, yeah, 100 properties. I agree. That's perfect. Um, all right, we beat that up pretty well. Uh, there's the other resources. We have a podcast with uh, Dennis Youssef, who is the BDM mm-hmm. coach out of, from Australia, brilliant guy. So those of you that want to dig into this topic, look back in the archives. I think it was the last podcast. Um, yeah, Dennis is a great guy. I've had a couple of conversations with him. He's coming to San Antonio next month for a, a bit of a, a talk for the narco community here. Uh, and I'll get a chance to meet with Dennis a bit more. I think he's a tremendous resource for business development so i'd highly encourage any of the listeners to reach out to him i think he's fabulous at what he does i mean yeah the guy closed you know (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of properties himself before becoming a coach so he's not just a you know he's not preaching he's actually not just preaching but he's uh he's very well experienced and and understands what needs to be done um speaking of conferences you know this episode is sponsored by pm growth summit and Brad is coming, and Dennis is going to be speaking there, and we have a star-studded lineup. Uh, I think there's 11 tickets left at this point. So, folks, you want to uh, jump on that, uh, pmgrowsummit.com. Lock yourself in. Uh, it's going to be a great, great conference in January in Florida. I can't believe you have 11 tickets left. I, I'm surprised <laughs> you haven't sold out. Well, well the- signed up as soon as we saw the lineup. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, thank you for that, Brad. Um, you know, the tickets are expensive. This is the first one we do when everything is included. It's unusual. You know, people, the NARPOM community is is amazing. And, and, you know, I'm on the board of Cal NARPOM and I love NARPOM to death. And I, you know, I appreciate and respect its leadership and, and I'm the biggest supporter. But, um, you know, the conferences are a lot less expensive with different kinds of uh, speakers. The PM Grow is really designed for the graduates of NARPOM conference. You know, folks in like like you who have fast growing businesses who need that you know masters you know to PhD level education on growth. Um, that's kind of what it provides. So, sure, and that, that would be a great segue into point number two. My uh-huh. all star list of mistakes would not be establishing metrics early enough. And to tie into what you're saying about NARPA, the broker owner conference in 2014, we did an awesome drill. Tony Dross headed this up to where we compiled numbers from all these different small, medium, and large management companies inside of NARPM, and we were able to basically see what the industry standard was for a lot of metrics that are fairly important to understand if you are gauging correctly to your peers left and right. And I think not establishing our metrics soon enough was a mistake because we really, really started to hone in on this you know, a year and a half ago, and, and I put together a very very detailed spreadsheet that we track religiously every month and i look back it's like man i wish we had done that from the very start because we could have made adjustments quicker and we could have realized where we were spending incorrect monies or needed to add in some certain monies so that's a that's a big point can i poke in it for a little bit um i really would like our audience to learn a couple of things specifically what specific kpis key performance indicators you find crucial for your business at this stage sure sure there's a couple of good ones uh i like the staffing to revenue ratio as one of them so you want to you want to see how much uh how much your staffing expense costs out of your annual revenue and so the magic line in the sand for a lot of these 
small, medium, large companies is around 50%. And that can be as high as 60 or as low as 40. Because when we did this, this drill in 14 with broker owner conference, uh, the smalls were doing, you know, they could run a, a, a business with their staffing at about 40%. What does that mean? Can you, can you explain uh, the, the the percentage? What do you divide by what to get the percentage? Sure. Let's say your let's say your total revenue is a million dollars a year, just a round figure, mm-hmm. and your staffing expense for that year was five hundred thousand. Well, that's easy math. That's fifty percent of your total revenue for the year was spent on staffing, and that's really kind of where it should be. If you get above fifty five or sixty percent, you might be spending too much on your staff. Or at least you want to take a very good look at it. I'm not saying it's wrong for your business. I'm just saying that's that's a metric that come that came out of the 14 conference that I really like to look at in our business. Mm, interesting. And so okay. another tidbit here, another cool one we, we put together in the last year is the ratio of sundry income to management revenue. So defining sundries, what's a sundry? That's that's all your little programs you have out there, your eviction insurance, rent protection. Uh, it could be your uh, late fees, your NSF fees, your early termination fees, your all your little sundry programs that you may have going against your management fee revenue. And so the Aussies, they, they're tracking it at 0.25. So every for every dollar of management fee revenue you generate, you could or should be getting in 25 cents of additional revenue for sundries, okay? And so to throw you a, a bone here, ours is at 70 cents. Oh, wow. 70 cents. So does we're, that include uh, lease only fees or does not? No, no, it does not include just your leasing only. It does yeah. not include leasing only. Does leasing Correct. only, do you guys do leasing only? We do, and we consider that a management fee. I got you, so that's, wow. Mm-hmm. So so that 70 cent is above and beyond your management and lease up fees. Correct. Nice. That's right. So that's a that's a tribute to Darren Hunter, for example, as I've been one of his disciples in learning how to fee max your business. What's some of the key? Um, if you don't mind me asking, what's some of the key uh, top? I guess top uh, uh, Sandra incomes on I- items on the list that make up that seventy cents, seventy percent. Okay. For example, we charge a pet admin fee. And that's a big one. I don't know if I really want to mention numbers for this forum, but, uh, you know, charging a pet admin fee of X and imagine that over two pets on a property. Well, the pet admin fee to, again, to use defined definition of the fee is non-refundable. It goes to the house. It goes to us. It goes to the company. Okay. Uh, deposit is actually owner's money in a lot of states, especially Texas. If you have a deposit, well, that's technically the owner's money. So we charge a fee, and that goes to us for the headache of dealing with the animal, the pet. I got you. And I was going to say, what does that fee cover? What does the tenant get out of it? Well, basically, that covers us to ensure that the uh, any damage done by that tenant above and beyond the security deposit is covered. Okay, so it's like a pet insurance. Well, it's not I wouldn't call it insurance, but, uh, but yeah. a pet protection fee or uh, assurance? Yeah, that's, that's close enough. I mean, without getting into many semantics and where we, we start throwing those terms around, then people can start pointing fingers at you and saying you're saying it, calling it the wrong thing and, yeah, yeah. you know, time to go to jail for you. Yeah, let's not let's not go to jail. Let's not go there. Yeah. But it's, it's a very creative way. And I've heard this done before. And, you know, Brad, you're a trailblazer, but we have some bright minds in the industry. And I've heard people structure different ways. The whole idea is for the tenant, like I had a German shepherd, I would pay more. You know what? I need to rent an apartment. I'm a responsible dude. I have a good family, whatever. My point is I don't destroy things, but I have a dog and I love my dog and I want to live with my dog. Right? I'm happy to pay you extra whatever, you know, 20, 30, 50 bucks a month um, for the privilege of living with my dog and not getting harassed. Yeah. Um, in this area, pet rent has not yet become uh, prevalent in this market, but it's creeping in. Uh, it's we, we're seeing it in Austin, we're seeing it in Houston, and, and some in Dallas. So it's only a matter of time before we start seeing it more and more nationwide. Uh, but you know, I'm not a big fan of it for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to you know dive into here. Okay, that's fine. Let's let's give people some food for thought and move on to our number three. Um, and you called it not being involved with NARPOM early enough. Um, mm-hmm. You wanna you wanna expand on this a bit? Yeah, I, I stumbled through kind of 
you know, forming a management company and, and getting it going. And I didn't really understand what was out there. But then I discovered NARPM and found a good mentor and started attending the, 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 the national conferences, especially the broker owner conference, and just learned an absolute ton. And again, it's one of those things you look back and say, man, I wish I discovered it from the very beginning. But I was, you know, into it for a couple, three years before I really started getting involved in it. And once I did, man, that turned the page. That really helped big time. Yeah. You get, you know, to learn how people solve common problems, you know, new innovative way to do it. There's other entrepreneurs, you know, that, that are in a similar boat. They'll, they'll share information freely. NARPM is an amazing organization. I've been a part of it myself for, what, seven, six years now, seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and I have deep friendships. Uh, I mean, like personal relationships with, with lots of people from NARPM. And that's been, uh, it's been a great, uh, great organization, no doubt about it. Um, so, folks, narpm.org, uh, N-A-R-P-M.org. If you're not a member yet, check that out. There's. Uh, I also want to plug my chapter, which is California, narpmcalifornia.org. We just built a new website. You can register for the conference there. You can review our educational lineup. The conference, uh, Cal NARPM conference, is happening in April. Um, check that out. There's a Texas one too, right, Brad? Yeah, there there is, and we're doing a Texas NARPM style in February in Austin. That should be a, a pretty cool deal. We'll have some good speakers. Uh, I think uh, Darren Hunter is going to be showing up. Wow. Uh, and then so there's going to be a couple of good ones there. But that's always a good opportunity just to sneak up to, to Austin and see what's going on up there and, and check out uh, you know some good speakers. They always come to those events. Yeah, we're definitely going uh, as a four and a half. We'll be represented there, that's for sure. Um, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts. Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah. But one of my favorite parts of going to these conferences is getting a one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with the vendors like you guys, because there's there's the class situation, which is awesome, but the down and dirty, okay, how do I actually do something inside the industry? Well, getting in front of a vendor, they can actually explain things to you better to immediately implement into your business, into procedures, right? like you guys. If we had some face-to-face -face time and we sat down and analyzed what we're doing, I know you could come up with a recommendation for me on a few points. So that's the, the best part about going to these conferences. Yep. So, you know, vendor relationships, uh, networking, building friendships, solving problems. I mean, come on, join NARPM. Enough said. Um, let's pop pop into four. Uh, you want to? Can, can we skip to five? Let's skip to five. Let's skip to five. Okay. I was yeah. gonna say I was gonna put this on you and say, hey, you go ahead. I'll take a break. You talk about yeah. number four, but we'll come back to it. Number five. Okay. Go for it. Yeah. Not establishing enough points of difference. Uh, I cannot stress that enough, in my opinion, is I didn't really get that going until later on to truly start sitting down and say, okay, what are my points of difference? And if you don't have any, create some. And it's real simple. If you want to create a good point of difference, have an in-house maintenance company. Uh, if you want an easy one, say that you do videos and nobody else does. Uh, there's There's got to be something that you can do in your market to create a point of difference from your competition. And if you can't, again, like I'll say it again, if you don't have any that you can easily pick out, create some. Create some because that's going to set you apart from everyone else doing the same exact thing you're potentially doing, and that's managing homes. Boy, I feel this is so close to the heart. I'm going to go on the rent right now. Um, <laughs> you unleash the fury. Uh, well, so, you know, we, we, we help property managers grow for a living. And, and you know, people do Google AdWords campaign. and Google AdWords campaign, you compete with folks uh, who want to be on the front page for, let's call it San Antonio Property Management. And when we work with clients and say, well, so, you know, we do a perfect client profile. We try to understand who they want to work with. It's like, well, we'll take anybody. Okay. So what is the, you know, what's unique about your business? Well, we call it, you know, unique value proposition, right? What is, what is unique about your business? Oh, uh, just use whatever you got, you know, whatever. I will take anybody. Um, <laughs> I can't, and then, and then, and then, what happens? Like, well, well why, why am I not getting convergence? Well, where are the leads? Well, somebody else is getting the leads because you're vanilla. Uh, you, you, you just, you like everything for everybody, and there's really no, you know, you're not attracting a specific category of clients who, who when they find you, go, ah, that's the person that solves my problem. I want to hire these people because they work with investors, or because you know they work in this part of town, or because you know what I had such a headache with you know maintenance in the past, or they have the eviction protection program. You know, there's so many points of difference. There's so many like pet fees. There's so many things. You're absolutely right. You differentiate yourself. That you got to dig before you hire a marketing company. Even 
um, or in, as you hire a marketing company, bounce things off of them, but but do come up with a unique way your business is uh, uh, presenting itself to customers. Your unique value proposition, your unique you know your points. You call it a what is it? Points of difference. Fine with points me. Of that's, difference. that's a good name too. Uh, whatever it is, you gotta know why you're better than others, and you mm-hmm. know that always. You know, if you're the low price, then fine, but be proud of it. You, you want to be the cheapest? Fine. Own it. Be the cheapest. That's okay, too. I'll, uh, you know, th- whatever, but don't just don't be vanilla. Yeah, and to put that in context for you as an example, one of our points of difference is a single owner point of contact. Uh, we run a portfolio management style hybrid business, and our owners know they can speak to one person directly for anything going on with their home. Uh, they have their iPhone, they have their email, and it's a single owner point of contact. So that's a great point of difference that I think we have over potential competitors around here. That, that is absolutely true. And, and, you know, people, like we assume as business owners, and I'm guilty of this as well, that others would know what you do. Because you've been, you've been brewing in this property management, or in my case, in this mark, digital marketing realm. Uh, you hear all the, you go to conferences, you, you, you know, or you listen to podcasts, you, you, you have your knowledge such you know compartmentalized in your mind so well that you don't you don't really understand that other people on the other side they don't know it they don't know what you know they don't know anything that you know um they need to be told explained and you know ah, man this is so good I, I love this one um let's go into your next one i really like unless unless you have anything else to mention on the points of difference i think that we, we got that across pretty clear don't you think yeah, we did. And I, you know, if you can start the drum roll, we can segue right into point six. <laughs> so exactly, uh, point six is going to be clearly uh, one of my dirty laundries is bad hires, making bad hires. Mm. And uh, in my email to you, I jokingly said there are two types of employers in the world: those that have or will make bad hires, and the others that lie about it, never making a bad hire. Because at some point, everybody will do that. Uh, and I don't have a perfect solution. I'm not going to come on here and tell you that, well, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you'll always make a perfect hire. Uh, the only thing I can recommend to anybody is to hire slow and fire fast, you know, the old adage. So I guess what we've adopted a little bit further is because I'm, I'm an easy sell. You know, you've sold me your stuff before, and, and I'm a quick pitch, and I'm, I'm where do I sign, Alex? I'm good. Let's go. Mm. Uh, you know, so I'm like that with my hires sometimes, and it's, it's a negative point of myself that I have to kind of calm down. So anyway, where I'm going to give some advice to your listeners is that uh, do a panel interview as a second interview. So maybe the initial phone interview with, with the person that's going to hire and, and the, 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 the potential person you want to hire, the, the interviewee, then a second interview, try to get a panel in front of them. Try to get your general manager and one or two other folks on that, on that panel and basically have a group discussion with that hire. Uh, the other thing that was suggested to me was just turn it over to somebody else. Turn over the complete hiring process over to somebody else who's who's not uh, doesn't have my personality. That that's a bit more. Uh, we'll take them with a grain of salt because I want to. I'm a positive person. I want to give people the benefit of the, the doubt and give them an opportunity to to succeed. But sometimes you have to look at them with a different eye and say, well, I don't know if you're really right for this position. Yeah. So there are performance concerns and there's a culture fit. Um, the culture fit can be, you know, the misfit can be uh, even more destructive than than, than low performance. Uh, low performance is e- is easier to man uh, to measure, uh, um, coach, and potentially, you know, put them on a program and then get rid of them. Culture fit is tough. Um, so in in our case, just to add to your advice, and that what you have is absolutely sound. We have at least six people interview uh, a prospective employee. Um, and, and from different departments, asking different questions. And, you know, a lot of times we don't really care um, about their experience too much. We, you know, we're going we're gonna to teach them what, what they need to learn to, to do the job well. Um, but we, we want to understand the personality and make sure there's a fit and there's a certain kind of a drive behind them. There's competence. There's, there's a, a, a opportunity for competence, but it's also like they care and, you know, they, they have their personal life pretty well structured you know they have hobbies you know there's a lot of things that go into it but we have you know at least four to five different perspectives then we get together and and make a unanimous decision if decision is not unanimous that person's not getting hired Mm -hmm. yeah exactly i wish you could bottle that 
process and put it out to the world forever because it's just it's one of those things that you kind of have to stumble through to figure out on your own that's what we found we do a, you know by the way on that with the the employee process i really really like how we use a peo uh like a third-party payroll provider and and we basically lease our employees from them and that is super slick that's really been a, a tremendous uh you know headache off of us is going through a peo to to have our employees on the books uh, interesting. So I wouldn't call a lease an employee, but it's in some ways, I guess you can interpret it as such. We also use a PEO. We've signed up with a company called Trinet, uh, I think about a couple of years ago, you know, as soon as we could afford them. And uh, it's been great. The HR help. So, you know, besides, you know, finding the right fit, there's also, you know, uh, things like benefits and other things that, that you buy at a much better rate when you work with a PEO because they have thousands, of, if not hundreds of thousands of employees um, and you don't. As a small business, so you don't have the buying power they have. Uh, so yeah, that's that's actually pretty good advice. Interesting. Uh, so yeah. you guys use a PO. That's good. Yep, yep. So I'd like to segue right into point seven with you. Oh, uh, what? A, how do you get a segue into this? This is a this I is don't a know. completely different uh, one. We got to come up with this is a good segue. But let's so just hit it. The segue is if you want to bang your head against the wall, let's talk about the IRS. Ah, okay. So the good point, bad points, uh, however you want to take them. I've got a couple good points for you. Ensure that your 1099s are in order to send out to your owners every January. So go through your process, ensure it's watertight, uh, ensure that you have good taxpayer identification numbers for the folks that you manage because the IRS will catch it and they find you on every one that's incorrect. So anytime there's a fat fingered number in your software and it transposes the number, you're going to get a fine. Or you're going to get a letter that says you're going to get a fine. So it's been a real headache, and we actually do quarterly audits now to ensure that all of our 1099s are accurate, uh, at least the taxpayer identification number. So when we send them up to the IRS, we're not going to get those nasty gram letters. Uh, and the second part of that is ensure that you're filing your tax returns for your limited liability corporations that a lot of people set up. You know, we've got a maintenance division, we've got a homeowners association division, and all had new LLCs, and we formed them late one year, and we didn't do a tax return because they're only in alive for a couple months and they had no revenue right but we still got a nasty gram from the irs it says we you know owed them this big fine and we sent a letter and said you'll please forgive us and they spanked our little hand and said okay you're forgiven but don't do it again mm. and so a couple lessons learned hopefully your audience can take from that uh get a good cpa and make sure that you're uh, in their back pocket every every month talking about your numbers and making sure your processes are correct you cannot overstate this this is you know we used to pay as an organization ourselves we used to pay irs fines for just about everything i couldn't believe it this a payroll late this late I, I mean it was just little things and it added up to a huge number and i looked at my year in pnl in 2013 i think and i'm like whoa uh <laughs> and, and, and you know saving money on bringing a good bookkeeper is the most ridiculous thing you can ever do <laughs> to your business, if not kill it altogether. Um, yeah, another good point on that is uh, I'm a fan of Robert Kiyosaki and everything he's put out. Uh, he recommends to have your personal books maintained by your bookkeeper. And so I started doing that this year to where all of our personal finances for the wife and I and the family, and they're all being run through the, the bookkeeper along with our business. And some people forget to do that. They're like, eh, I'll just go home and do it on QuickBooks or, you know, whatever they want to do or Quicken. And uh, they forget to add that. Well, come tax time, you're having to combine two different files to turn into your CPA. Well, just have your bookkeeper do everything for you. And then it's just one easy file to your CPA and a lot less headache involved. Mm, that's an interesting point. Okay, good stuff. Um, all right, we're checking along pretty well here. Um, I think... Number eight is pretty interesting, and we can spend some time on it. Um, yeah. You call it not implementing a preferred vendor program as a mistake. Tell me more. Absolutely. So everyone's going to have to do maintenance, and you're either going to have a couple different ways to run a maintenance company. I'll give you two good lessons learned there. Is inside of a maintenance company, if you want to do it inside your business, stay small or go big. Don't get stuck in no man's land. Don't go in the middle. Because if you're in the middle, you're not making money. And trust me from experience in this. So we've actually downsized our maintenance division to a director of maintenance and a one-person uh, in-house maintenance guy with a van 
And so that's how we run. But the preferred vendor program is something that I would basically justify as a great way to assure that your maintenance company will be profitable. And essentially, you could do it a couple of different ways. You could go out and secure discounts from the vendors or the, all the software that we use, all the software you can mention, they all allow you to pay vendors a discounted rate. So you have to go out and to negotiate that particular rate with a preferred vendor. So if you want to talk easy math, let's say you get an invoice for 100 bucks, and you've negotiated a 10% discount with that particular vendor of that $100 invoice, you write a check for $90 going out the door, and now you have a $10 or 10% margin of profit just from doing that one little one little idea. And yeah. so when you take that to the aggregate, that could be thousands, hundreds of thousands. Mm. I want to qualify something. This is that mystery to me, and I want to dig a little deeper here. You said, right when you opened point number eight, you said um, either staying small in your mate, in, in, inside maintenance company or going big is the way to go. Middle is no way to make money. Can you qualify a little bit? Can you tell me more why, why, why is it so hard to make money being in the middle there? And what's the middle? The middle, I would say, would be two to three to four to five trucks and guys and staff members working for you. Uh, I think that's to keep a guy on a payroll over the winter or the summer, whatever your market's going to dictate, to keep a guy on a payroll full time and not have enough work for him in the slower times of year just kills all your profits. And we had a very good panel in the last broker owner conference. Uh, they had a maintenance panel and the guys that were on that were just phenomenal. Uh, talking about their maintenance companies, and one of them was our past Narcom president. You know him well. Uh, he, they were up there talking about it, and the size of their maintenance companies is just phenomenal. They got 10, 15, 20 folks working for them, you know, 15, 20 trucks being dispatched at all times. And that's one of the ways they make money on that is, is going that big. I found for us, when we got into that middle range, it was just not profitable at all. I mean, you're really breaking even and you're basically offering a point of difference for free. And mm -hmm. so we scaled back and we just run with one truck, one guy, one van, one guy, uh, and one maintenance director, and they execute your maintenance because you cannot get away from it running a, ma a management company because maintenance and management go hand in hand. You can't do one or the other uh, because somebody's got to organize and coordinate for the maintenance. You might as well do that in-house. And I like the preferred vendor technique. I'm very happy with it. And I should have been using it years ago. But I just now really kind of went full circle and shot myself in the foot. And that's where we come around to uh, that being a big lesson learned. Interesting. So so preferred vendor in combination with a small in-house maintenance team is what the formula is for you right now. But what if you were double the size? Uh, by the way, what, 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 what is your portfolio? We never qualified that. What do you guys do? Yeah, we're, we're at 600 single family homes. Very nice. So if you were at 1,200, do you think you could swing a larger company? I think so. Okay. So, I think so, so. It, However, it, the, the headache involved and the insurance implications going along with it, uh, you know, I just look at other management companies in San Antonio. I could drop names, but they're all good. You've probably heard of them. Mm -hmm. And I speak very highly of all of them. Uh, I'm taking what they're doing in their maintenance companies, and they potentially are twice my size. And I think – that's been a formula for success for them for years, decades. And I should basically, I don't want to be the, the trailblazer on that one. I'm just telling you that I should have been looking around a long time ago to figure out this process and adopted it sooner. That's the lesson learned uh, of my dirty laundry. Mm. So one other question on in-house in maintenance, uh, or I call them a complementary business units, right? If you run that maintenance company as its own organization and bill back to Larson Properties all the fees and actually do the, its own P&L, do you do its own P&L or is it combined? We do. We do its own, its own P&L. But I can tell you, I think it can be either way. You know, there's been good advice at the Narcom conferences that says break out your maintenance company for liability issues, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I could argue it also could stay into the management company as – an integral part that you basically have to do. Right. So it's, it's either or, six one and a half dozen the other, they both work out, uh, but I think it's just something that's gotta be done. Gotcha, so if you run this as its own independent uh, uh, you know, business unit, you know, 
is there money to be made in like let's say forget your larson let's say you sell larson property management and you focus on maintenance can you make money just doing that i think it would be tough ah. i think it would be tough i think if you could squeeze past a 10 percent margin profit margin you'd be doing very well and of course there's examples out there where you know i'm sure you're gonna get hate mail oh i get you know 11 margin he's wrong well okay there you go but uh I think the management side is much more has much more potential for profit and actual contractual value. You know, we start talking about the value of the business as a whole. Uh, it's much easier to potentially sell a contract for management than it is some sort of maintenance structure entity over to your right. Uh, imagine if you're trying to sell those businesses, who's going to want to buy which one? No one's going to want to buy the maintenance company. No doubt. Should be a lot of people lined up to buy your your management contracts. No doubt. And also, you know, lifetime customer value is, you know, a maintenance could be an $80 repair where a lifetime, average lifetime customer value for a property management client is in the, you know, it could be in a, in a multiples of thousands, you know, five, six to 10,000 in some cases. Yep. Um, so earning a customer for property management um, is uh, over the long haul is less expensive than earning a customer for maintenance. So I get it. All right. So maintenance to complement your existing business and you know, use preferred vendors, uh, negotiate a discount, and uh, that's that's good. That's a good. That's a good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Number nine, near and dear to my heart. Let's let's hit on um, on reviews a little bit and your perspective on how that works for your business. Yeah. So uh, I think it would be a mistake to not embrace Yelp and Google and all the others out there. Uh, you got Yelp, Google, Angie's List, uh, Better Business Bureau. And you probably have 10 others that you could drop on me here. But uh, basically, I think you need to get to the, get past the point that we're all mad at Yelp, <laughs> right? Yeah. Every every business owner you talk to from top to bottom, you know, they're not big fans of Yelp in a, to a certain degree uh, because some things, you know, I can go on to Yelp and say Alex is a Martian and you can't do anything about it. You know, it really is kind of frustrating, but uh, I've turned my attitude around a little bit and basically have tried to embrace those review platforms. Uh, And I do think long term, five to 10 years down the road, I think they're just going to be white noise. I think that people are going to put very a diminishing value of stock into Yelp and Google type reviews because at some point everyone's going to even out. And they're all going to have the same type of reviews from friends, family, uh, and then whomever they were able to uh, cajole into bringing them a review. So at this point, at this stage of the game, 2016 going into 17, uh, basically I think you want to embrace them and try to make yourself stand out. Because it's another good point of difference, as we talked about, is having solid Yelp reviews and solid Google reviews. And you know this tremendously because you taught me this years, years ago. Uh, is you don't know what you're missing out on. You don't know who's looking at you today saying, I'm not going to call that company because their Yelp reviews were not to my liking. And that's that's something you never could even quantify what you're missing out on. Yeah, agreed. And and, and the truth is that vast majority of your clients and tenants are happy. Um, well, you hope. You hope so. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're happy being that they, they have a good place to live. They're paying rent. They're responsible people. And the owners getting their check every month, and they're happy too. You're getting their maintenance done. They would never venture to consider to give you a review without a prompt, because, you know, what's a successful property management relationship? You know, I got a good house. You know, good. Um, thank you very much. So you only really think of a property manager when things go wrong. So that's why the industry. You know, it's a simple metric why the industry is getting, and also multiple constituencies like tenants and owners. It's. Uh, if you do nothing, you will end up with lots of negative reviews, most of them not untrue just because people won't necessarily say, okay, I didn't pay rent for three months. I got evicted. Five stars. <laughs> not going to <Yeah>. happen. <laughs> They're going to say something to the tune of, you know, this is the worst property manager in the world. Stay away, blah, blah, blah. You know, and that's just, you know, that's how we are as humans. You know, we don't, you know, we don't, we're not going to take on the blame. We're going to blame somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. So to, to be able to combat that, asking your happy customers for reviews is a way to go. We just got to have a system in place. You did a pretty good job on that, don't you? How many, like you have like a lot of Google reviews. Yeah, we're in a 150, 160 range <laughs> and a, yeah. like a, like a 4.8 average. So we're, we're doing okay there. 
uh, you know, we've got some techniques that work pretty well and, and in getting those reviews. And we've also got some techniques that work pretty well in getting rid of reviews uh, to where we potentially go back to that reviewer and try to work things out as best you can. So not to take your whole episode on this, but uh, we're going to have to get to number 10, and you know, number one on the list, let's say. So we're going to have to do a drum roll with some fireworks here for us to get to this number one. Okay. Uh, well, go ahead and hit it. All right. So my number one of biggest mistakes out there, I think, would be failing to implement, meaning failing to recognize a good idea and failing to put it in your business too, not soon enough. And I could talk all day about this because it is, it's something that I'm a firm believer in is when you see something at these conferences and, hey, that's a great idea, and somebody may even write it down and they go back to their home office and they don't do anything about it. So you want to quantify it? Let, let's give you a good one right now. So exactly a year ago, we looked into tenant liability insurance. It was directly after that conference in, uh, the conference in Minnesota, right? Mm-hmm. And we were up there in Minneapolis, and that was in late October, I believe, and then we came home in November, and okay, December, we got around to looking at this in, in detail, and we looked at the tenant liability insurance as a whole and thought, that's that's great. That's a no-brainer. That makes a ton of sense. And there's a bunch of vendors out there you can look at. Uh, but this year, 2016, after we implemented that program, last year, 12 months ago, we made an extra $14,000 just in one year with about one-third implementation meaning we only got about a third of our tenants on that program, and we made an extra 14000 in company revenue. So failing to implement would have cost me that much. So Fair that's enough. a great way to quantify it. Is there a certain system you use to take knowledge learned at the NARPM conferences and other industry events uh, to take back to your shop and uh, work on implementing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a fan of writing things down with an actual pen and an actual paper uh, you know, two times, you know, too often of times we get lazy and just say, take notes on your iPhone or bring in an iPad and kind of type them a little bit. I'm a firm believer that if you physically write something down and brain ingrains itself into your brain there a little bit better because you're, it's the tactile response of your fingers actually moving the pen and you can look up and write at the same time. You're probably pretty good at that, right? So it, it puts that into your brain a bit more and then you have to organize those thoughts later on to say, okay, this is first. This is, a, this is an easy one. This is going to make us money. I'm going to do this first. And you have to prioritize them all the way down to like, okay, this is a back burger one because one, we make very little money on it. And two, it's going to be, it's going to take a long time to implement. So the ones that can make you a good chunk of revenue, you want to knock out first. Yeah, I, I agree. So we have, you know, we've covered good nine points. Um, you know, I have one more to bring up. Um, you know, and it's it. It has to do with um, the uh, um, the, uh, the the. I guess I'm just trying to kind of verbalize myself here. Uh, it has to do with some business owners um, utilizing set it and forget it strategy, rather than uh, um, you know measure and improve and iterate and you know measure again and so on. So. I think you actually brought that up here as one of the points um, where you say, you know, establish metrics at the point number two we talked about. But mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, we see, I personally see this, uh, you know, really good companies completely fail in, in certain elements and specifically in growth by, you know, thinking that, okay, I'm just going to hire this marketing company and I can just, you know, just just move away or I'm going to implement Appfolio and or propertyware or whatever this new system is that you're looking at, Buildium, right, or anything else, or, you know, Rently, anything. And you can just set it and, you know, and let it kind of, I guess, install itself and then let it kind of work for you and bring the efficiencies back and your your bottom line. That's not going to happen. It, it requires, you know, as a business owner, it is your job to, to make sure that every uh, system in your business is constantly uh, spitting out KPIs where you're measuring these things, where you're tracking these things, and put you know, and make sure some of your employees own certain aspects of your business. And you and and you got you know my, my, my big belief is is compensating people for performance. So there's some performance metrics uh, connected to their paycheck, and 
and and and that way everybody's aligned behind a, sim, a single purpose. So don't use set it and forget a strategy. Set it, manage it. You know, make sure it it gives you the uh, the information you need to make decisions on how to continue to improve the system, whether it's a software, whether it's a marketing program you're implementing, a new website, uh, whatever it is. Um, so um, that's, that kind of wraps up our 10. Um, Brad, I want to thank you very much. Any other parting words of wisdom? On the implementation side, for sure. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head with a lot of comments there. I will tell you that going back to quantify this again, you know, we talked about this earlier in the show and what gets measured gets managed through our metrics. And we talked about the sundries income, of, you know, roughly 70 cents to every dollar management fee. Well, that's a direct result of implementation of taking ideas that I picked up at NARPA or that I picked up through kind of keeping my antenna up, as, as, as one of your, your podcasters might say, uh, keeping up the antenna and picking up what's out there, coming back and putting it into the system. Okay, that's the end result of where I've got to that point is implementation. And I can't say it enough. So, you know, if we could, like we talked about earlier, if we could bottle it and, and package it and sell it, we could. But uh, it's just something that's coming from internally. The business owners, they have to do themselves. This is not a sudden forget asset you have. This is a business. And you continually have to nurse it and implement new ideas. And that's going to keep it healthy and vibrant and growing. Awesome, Brad. So thank you kindly. If people wanted to uh, chat you up, would you be open for some questions? Absolutely. How would they be yes. able to reach you? Uh, you can find us on our website. It's SATXPM, so San Antonio, Texas, Property Management, SATXPM.com. And my email is brad at SATXPM.com. Brad, you've been most kind. And this is one of the best episodes with a lot of actionable advice. I appreciate your time, sir. And we'll see you in January at the PM Growth Summit. You got it, Alex. I'm excited. Thanks.